From the studios of WHUPLP in Hillsboro, North Carolina, this is Dirty White Belt Radio. Innovative, often duplicated When enough people get on the trend I elevate it, make it way harder For them to follow what I take It hard to swallow like a lozenger Lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up So just take your stuff Rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk, you painted skunks You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space So the weight is up Fight, fight Welcome to a special episode of Dirty White Belt Radio. It's going to be our second show recapping Toro BJJ's Toro Cup 6, the biggest, best Toro Cup yet. Why, you might ask, are we doing two shows? Well, if you listened last week, uh, Pedro Sauer Black Belt, David Porter, the victor in his match and the watcher enthusiastically of the other matches, showed up live in studio when we broke down basically the whole card. However, we had roving reporter Lourdes Cantu, uh, formerly of Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, now training at Great Grappling in Charlotte, going around and interviewing interesting members of the scene, people after they got finished with their matches. We got such great results that we wanted to give you a second show, especially because as James Boomer Hogaboom and I talked about today, it's uh, Thursday morning as I record this and my Facebook feed is still blowing up with people talking about Toro Cup, about the video of the matches, about the outcomes. And so people seem to be really still interested in this. So we're going to bring you another show about Toro Cup. First of all, I do want to tell you, because it's Thursday morning, there's still time to register for the Dominica Oblaniche seminar. Friday night at Elevate MMA, that's a women-only seminar, starts at 7 p.m. Saturday night, that's February, or Saturday day, February 18th, starting at 11 a.m. at Triangle Jiu-Jitsu in Durham, North Carolina. One of the interviews with Saida Durkee, who was another victor in a Toro Cup match, talks about the importance of women to train both with each other and for women to train with men. And so I think it's going to be – if you listen to that interview later in the show, you'll get a good idea for why we're so excited about this Dominica seminar. It's the first seminar that we at Dirty White Belt Radio have put on. We're very excited about it to train with the best in the world currently, the reigning, defending – weight class and absolute double gold two-time winner of the world who hasn't lost a match in over two years. So please either go to dirtywhitebelt.com slash shop to pre-register or just show up. There are still spaces available both Friday night at Elevate MMA and Saturday at Triangle Jiu-Jitsu in Durham, North Carolina starting at 11. So we gave Lourdes Cantu a microphone and said, go find the best stories at Toro Cup. And we found a bunch of great stories. The two featured interviews, which are going to be longer than any others, each about 15 minutes, are with Nico Ball of the Terror A Kids Project, who tells some really amazing stories, uh, including one in particular that I think that you're going to find very affecting about her three years working with the Terror A Kids Project. Toro Cup 5, if you remember, was a benefit for the Terror A Kids Project. And if you went to that Toro Cup and contributed some money, thank you for doing so, by the way, Nico will tell you exactly what your money went to do, then the direct benefit it had in the lives of people in the favelas in Brazil, helping to build jiu-jitsu for the next generation down there. So please look forward to that. We also have a 15-minute interview, 15 interview with Jeremy Orell of Great Grappling. They have exciting news in terms of the Fight House, the Project Tap House, which there have been a lot of rumors about, we've mentioned on the show. But now Jeremy gives us a, a f- some firm details about what's happening with that house and what to expect in the future. First, though, I want to start off this show by playing some post-match interviews. One of the most exciting things for me as someone that watches jiu-jitsu is to get the reaction, the emotion of someone 
just as they come off the mat. And we kicked off Toro Cup this time with a juvenile match uh, with Nathaniel Hunt of Pendergrass Academy coming off as the victor. And he finished with a really slick armbar. And, you know, I always tell people, I'm going to quit once I get a brown belt because the kids are coming for all of us. They're so good and so their technique is so good. And to watch uh, Nathaniel get that victory and then uh, – uh, to watch Lourdes interview him and see the excitement that was happening was really uh, inspiring to me. So hopefully it is to you as well. This is Lourdes with Dirty White Belt Radio. I'm standing here interviewing Nathaniel from Pendergrass Academy, and he just finished his his match at Toro Cup. Nathaniel, tell me about your match. Oh, it was awesome. Um, I, I got on top early, and um, I just kept going and driving forward. He was really well. He was really well. At, he did really well at um, retaining guard for a while, but then I was able to pass, and I... Uh, it was, it was good. It came out on top. So how did how was the match finished? What tell me what happened right when like when you knew and and what was going on? Well, when I was able to get my knees under his um, armpits, um, I knew that um, I drilled attacking from there and um, arm locks and stuff, and it was just really good. I saw the opportunity. My um, coaches did a great job in preparing me for that, and I was able to capitalize on it when the opportunity came. Well, thank you so much for stopping in and talking to us, and congratulations. Thank you so much. Another winner in her first Toro Cup match was Maggie McDowell of Lucas Lepree BJJ. Lourdes talked to her immediately following her match with Amber Habel from Triangle Jiu-Jitsu. I'm standing here interviewing Maggie. She just um, finished her match with Amber Habel. Maggie, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about, a little bit about you. Uh, my name is Maggie McDowell. I'm a blue belt training at uh, Lucas Lepree Winston-Salem. Been doing Jiu-Jitsu for around three years now. Maggie, that match was pretty intense, and honestly, like the, in the submission-only portion, I was a little bit worried for you on that, on that choke at the end there. Tell me what was going on, what was going on in your mind. Um, Amber's super tough. We've competed against each other a lot, but uh, I thought she almost had that choke. My coaches were telling me, like, there was only a little bit of time left, so I tried to wiggle my hand in and just kind of wait it out because I was having a hard time getting out of it. Yeah, Amber's Amber's chokes are pretty dangerous. I've experienced them myself, and uh, I it was I was really impressed with how you were able to hold out on that. But tell me then, so when it when you guys got to the point portion, you kind of just got on top and were doing amazing. It was like what? So what? What was going on there? The main thing I want to do during the points match was just stay on top. I knew I knew that's what, that was my best chance of winning. Stay on top, pass the guard, things like that. Not be on bottom against Amber. Well, you did great. It was a very entertaining match. It was, it was really a great pleasure to watch you guys um, compete against each other, and hopefully I'll see you guys again soon. And um, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is a great event. We're going to change it up just a little bit. This isn't a post-match interview. This is a pre-match interview. Jeff Daughtry from Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu is a really well-respected jiu-jitsu practitioner who's a brown belt under Mazi Hayderi. And Jeff does compete, but Jeff's main focus is self-defense because he's a, a Durham County uh, a sheriff's deputy. And so Jeff talked to Lourdes both about the match that he was about to have, but also about the role of his training in terms of law enforcement and why he thinks it's important. So I thought that y'all should hear that uh, irrespective of the outcome of the match. Uh, so here's Jeff Daughtry. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Lord. First of all, why did you start training jiu-jitsu? Uh, I got into jiu-jitsu uh, several years ago. Um, I actually didn't really know a lot about it. I got introduced to it, uh, fell in love with it. I've been in it now for probably just a little over 10 years. It has really helped in my law enforcement career as far as confidence level, uh, controlling individuals who become violent, 
uh, which happens on a regular basis uh, out on the street these days. Um, so every chance I get to uh, train or compete, I'm trying to jump at it and uh, trying to get my fellow sheriff's deputies and law enforcement officers and troopers to uh, do the same, to join up and uh, get into the sport. There's nothing like it. Have you been able to use any of the jiu-jitsu you've learned in, um, in any of the reality-based scenarios you've had? Uh, actually, I have on a couple of occasions. Um, the best thing about the, the training is when you are rolling or sparring, as some people call it. It's, uh, you can go as light as you want or all out. Uh, when I initially started, uh, I was training with uh, Mozzie, and uh, Mozzie goes all out. I learned really quickly to... Uh, to learn how to defend myself, protect myself. Uh, he would push you really hard. Uh, he still does that today. And uh, that's what I try to do. Uh, put yourself in as bad a position as you can be in and know that you can be calm and come out of that situation. You might be a little bit scraped up, but you're gonna survive it. How does the training that you get from Jiu Jitsu differ from what the police academy prepared you for um, before you, you went out on this, before you started your job? The uh, subject control techniques that law enforcement teaches you are very sound. They are, they, they're very good. But just like anything else, if you don't practice them, if you don't apply them, uh, if not on the street with uh, the guy that works the area next to you, if you don't practice these techniques on a regular basis, chances are they're going to leave you and you're going to forget them when the time comes, when the fight breaks out. Uh, the great thing about jiu-jitsu is we drill it, we practice it, uh, and you react. Uh, when the fight happens, you're not in straight panic mode because you've been there before. You know, okay, this is bad, but I'm okay. Now it's time to go to work and time to, time to survive this situation. Thank you, Jeff. We're really looking forward to watching your match today, and I really appreciate you stopping by to talk to Dirty White Belt Radio. Thank you, ma'am. I appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to it as well. See you guys on the mat. We're going to close out our match recap segment with a couple of really interesting ones. And this is one of my favorite pieces of tape from the whole weekend. Saida Durki, who I hadn't seen compete before, had a terrific, terrific fast-paced match with Jordan Wise from TFTC that went the distance. Just a really excellent display of toughness and tenacity from both of those women. Saida's technique looked great. Lourdes talked to her after the match, and Saida talked to us not just about her training and her match, but also about women in jiu-jitsu and learning. And I thought her thoughts were pretty salient, especially what's coming up in the next couple days. So here's Lourdes Cantu talking to Saida Durki. Hi, I'm Saida Durki. I train in Washington, D.C. Uh, with Amar Barbosa and Isaac July and also Dave Jacobs. Well, Saida, we were um, just having a conversation about um, the Dominica Obalente seminar and how she's going to be doing um, a, uh, a, a women's only on Friday night and on Saturday doing a, a co-ed event and we just started talking about about the importance of men and women training together yeah. so and you were saying some really important things that I, I think that our audience would really like to hear thank you yeah I mean I think it's really important for women a to train with other women when they're competing there are a lot of women who don't have other women to train with and uh, I've realized that there's a huge movement of women only seminars and events and people going to different schools and academies and training together, which I think is awesome. But I also think it's really important for men to realize the importance of women training with them and realizing what, you know, how to operate around different body types and that not everyone is created the same way. And you know, when you're coaching women or when you're rolling with women, that it's a different, it's a different game and they have to adapt just as much as we've had to adapt for them. 
Do you have a lot of women that train at your school? I do. I train with a lot of women. I do. Um, I have one woman that's my main training partner who's uh, an ADCC champion, brown belt, which is so rare to have that available to you on a daily basis and she's always been my inspiration for competing as a woman um her name is marisha i'm not even gonna pretend to pronounce her last name uh but she's really amazing and she's really helped me you know she trains with men all the time but to be able to have her to work off of and her skill and her talent is amazing yeah so training women women training with men is important for and it's especially important for the the men to yeah. to um to be um, responsive and and to want to train with us but it's also I think um, important for women to kind of some to kind of get over any barriers of wanting to only train with women and and be okay with training with guys um, so what's been your experience or how's your school ha- how does your school handle that like how how is how was the training with the the co-ed training at your school so we we're very uh you know we have a a big cross section of different sized women and different sized men so we've really never had that problem but in traveling i've definitely noticed the issues with either women not wanting to train with the men there or the men thinking they have to go you know all soft and then if they if something goes wrong then they say oh well it's a girl you know but I think that um, at my academy we really focus on you know just realizing there are a whole lot of different body types whether male or female and just working off of that and you know adapting and training hard together uh, but training smart. And I, I do think that having um, more of these co-ed seminar events like Dominica's uh, throwing um, of here at, uh, at TJJ and at Elevate um, next weekend, February 17th and 18th, would uh, definitely help encourage um, some more cross-training and training with uh, uh, training, men and women training together. And I think the last point that I want to make that's really important, that when you have these high-level females coming in to do seminars, men can learn just as much from those women than, you know, if they go to a high-level male seminar. I mean, I know a lot of guys that intentionally go to the female seminars and just get so much out of it. So I think it's great that they're doing that. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me, and I look forward to seeing you next weekend at the Dominica Seminar, and, um, and a great job today in your Toro Cup match. Thank you so much. Have a great day. I want to end the post-match segment with what is certainly my favorite post-match interview, and it's not a coincidence that this is a two-person interview, because I think this interview with Lori Porsche and Chelsea Kurtzman after their purple belt match really uh, exemplifies the Toro Cup spirit, where you have two really fierce competitors. You know, Lori is a really accomplished competitor, super technical brown but are super technical purple belt who has some big wins against really tough competition and chelsea um who is a mainstay of the local grappling scene uh they had a really memorable match me and dave porter talked about that match on the last show but i wanted you to get a taste of what these two women thought about in terms of their toro cup match Mm -hmm. experience and what the toro cup event means to them so i really think this exemplifies the sort of matches we're trying to put on and so i'm excited to share it with you this is Lourdes with Dirty White Belt Radio, and I'm here speaking with Chelsea Kurtzman and Miss Lori Porsche, who are at the Toro Cup Six, and they just put on an amazing match for us. Um, and hi, ladies. Hello. Hey. So, um, t- why don't you guys tell us about your match? What'd you think? 
Uh, it was really fun. When I think back at it, I'm like, I feel like I spent it all in bottom side control, which is okay. But <laughs> um, it was a fun match. Um, there was a little bit of bun side control, but Chelsea managed to pick me up several times with this giant bump, so that was kind of fun to play around with. It was pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I, I was I was pretty amazed. It was almost like she was going to be able to, like, while you were on top of her, she was going to be able to stand up in a key up, and, um, and, and she did, I think, almost stand up both times. She did. I think she did. No cigar, no cigar. But, uh... <laughs> I was excited. It was really fun. Lots of cross face. I'm glad we were both going for the wrists. That was fun. Always doing that. Yeah. So so no no um no crazy wrist locks today. No. The other day, like I went for Lourdes's wrist and I went for the wrong one. See see like her. Oh. She's got a brace on that one. She's wearing a brace on her wrist. I'm I'm wearing the brace for a reason. I thought it was the other wrist. I'm sorry. <laughs> It was fun. Uh, it's just fun to have to have a match with somebody where there's there's absolutely no animosity. You're just having a good time, good jujitsu. I would try and go for a wrist lock. She would kind of laugh, <laughs> then try and go for a wrist lock herself. We were still working really hard. We were still you know we were still competing hard, but it was just all in. It, it was good vibes. It was fun. It was a super fun match. We were really excited. Um, so I, I thought it was it was actually a really fun uh, match to watch you and you know we're doing this it's a, this is a charity event so I thought that your match really kind of um, kind of showcased that whole like you know positive uh, working you know like positive competition um, and you could see that you guys were both having a good time out there and it was and it was entertaining for the people to watch um, so thank you so much um, you both are competing this year I'm guessing like what's what's the plan for this year other than Toro Cup. So other than Toro Cup, just to see what comes down the pipeline, um, uh, see what work allows, but I'm going to try and compete at PANS, um, probably do the New York Open in the summer, try and hit a few IBJJF tournaments, and then, um, you know, if, if Toro Cup will have us back, I think I, w- I would love to come back. I would too. That was really fun. I would love to do it again. Do you ladies have anything else to tell our listeners? I would just say come out and uh, check out Toro Cup if you're ever really if you're ever interested in the event. It's super fun, good vibes. The North Carolina jiu-jitsu scene, North Carolina South Carolina jiu-jitsu scene is super friendly with good solid fundamentals, good jiu-jitsu. Um, it's it's like a big social reunion every time we have one of these. Everybody runs around, you're running into your friends, stuff like that. So just come and check it out. Um, they always put on a good show. They they uh, are, are organized and they support a good cause. It's really great. I would totally recommend coming to Toro Cups. I mean, if you thought that, you know, our sportsmanship with each other and just the good vibes were there, it is literally everybody. Like, it's so much fun being here, and all the people competing are all buddies. Like, they compete hard against each other, but it's all friendly in the end, and it's just great. Like, everybody's having fun. Everybody watching is having fun. Everybody competing. So it's a really great event. Um, One last question. Um, Have you guys had any of the Yellow Bear Bakery cookies? And if you did, what was your favorite? I have, but not yet today. Um, always the pronies are good, and we cannot say enough good things about the Samoas ever. It's literally the reason I always sign up for Toro Cup. I today have had some maple snickerdoodles, also chocolate chip cookies, but the Samoas, Bev is going to put the Girl Scouts out of business. I actually have I have a dozen in the cooler waiting for me right after the event. I pre I pre ordered I tried to pre order like way way too late and like no I'm already in Italy. Bye. <laughs> well, thank you, ladies, for talking with me today, and I look forward to watching your matches again in the future. Thank you. Thank you.
And that brings us to our featured interview. Uh, folks, I, I was really excited to talk to Nico Ball because, as, as most of you know, we've been doing Toro Cup as a benefit for charity since it began. Now, uh, And we've benefited a bunch of different local charities from Geese for GIs, the most recent beneficiary. We've done that a couple times. Mission 22, another veteran-oriented charity. Uh, we've also done a, a charity for local – or done a benefit for local animal cha- charities, which was uh, you know a cause near and dear to my heart as well as to the cause of – uh, as well as to the heart of Mary Holmes, who suggested that. But one of the most important uh, beneficiaries is the Terror Ray Kids Project. I would tell you all about it, but I'd rather have Nico Ball do it. And so we'll get to that interview in just a second. But I just want to mention that uh, Fernando Terror Ray, legendary practitioner of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, legendary competitor and teacher, has a social project where he, free of charge, teaches Jiu-Jitsu uh, to kids from the favelas. And I want... You know, I could tell you why I think that's important, but it's better if we hear from Nico Ball. And so here's our featured interview with the Terror Ray Kids Project's Nico Ball. Our featured interview today is brought to you by Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Company, featuring the best gis, rash guards, shirts, fight shorts, and all other products for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Toro BJJ is the best company to support for your grappling needs. Additionally, Toro BJJ does a lot to support our local community as well, and it's important to support those who support us. You can check them out online at torobjj.com or in person at 124 Ladder Road in the location of Cage Side Fight Company and Triangle Jiu-Jitsu. Thanks to Toro BJJ for supporting this featured interview. Hey, this is Lourdes and Jeff Shaw with Dirty White Boat Radio, and we're here talking with Nico Ball today. And Nico's here talking to us about the Terre Kids Project. Hi, guys. How are you? Great, thanks. So, so tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the Terre Kids Project. Um, well, it's kind of funny. My story is actually very similar to Jeremy. So I ended up in Brazil in quite the same fashion. I had no idea what I was doing. I wanted to go train jiu-jitsu. I was a white belt that did MMA, so I had no idea what jiu-jitsu was, but like all MMA fighters, we think we know what we're doing, even though we've never trained in a gi. So I just decided to move down to uh, Brazil. Um, I contacted Kira Gracie, actually, just randomly sent her a Facebook message because I was always into social projects. I, I was a teacher before I moved to Brazil. I love working with children. I love working in education. So she used to run a social project out in Rio called, um, oh my God, Capacidades. Um, so I messaged her saying I was interested in the program and that I wanted to go out to Brazil, but I had no resources there, and I was never expecting an answer. Not in a million years. It's Kira Gracie. It was the only female name in jiu-jitsu that I knew at the time, um, but she did. She answered. Um, two words, three words, try Connection Real. Um, and that kind of saved my life. Um, so I went down there. I, I trained, um, or I stayed at Connection Real for three months. Um, and it, within those three months, I met Terere. I started training at his academy that is in Ipanema. And when my time at Connection Rio was up, I ended up moving into the favela um, with Terere. Um, and he kind of took care of me from there. And I spent three months living, training, uh, I'm sorry, three years living, training, and working with him down in Rio. And what year was that? When did you first go down and when did you come back? I went down in 2013 and I just came back this July. So, so are, are you planning to go back or are you just here for a short time? Like what brought you back to the United States? Uh, my parents brought me back um, 
a few other obligations that I had here came back, but I am still working with the project. I am planning on going back in April, and I'm also planning on going back this summer. A lot of people from the U.S. often go down to Brazil to train with Tedede during the summers, um, so I'm going to be down there for that to facilitate um, those transactions with the project. So tell us a little bit about your role in the project, like what you do, and what kind of social action, like what, what impact the Terror Ray Kids Project makes in the lives of, of these kids. Okay, so it's uh, somewhat of a complicated story because Teddy Day has been giving free jiu-jitsu classes since he was a blue belt in 2000. So he really started the social pro, uh, the social project movement in Rio in the favelas. He brought jiu-jitsu to the favelas of Rio. Um, Teddy Day was given a bolsa or uh, an opportunity to train for free at Alliance with um, uh, Paiva in in LeBlanc. And so he was able to learn jiu-jitsu. He was able to compete. But at the time, it was an expensive sport. You know, you got to think that a gi or a kimono is like $100, 200 back then. I'm not sure how much it was there, but they're, they're kind of expensive. So for somebody that makes about $80 a month um, for a minimum wage, you know, trying to do jiu-jitsu isn't actually feasible. So Tedere was actually given an opportunity to learn jiu-jitsu. He got his blue belt, and then he started giving that right back to the community. Um, so he has been giving um, jiu-jitsu classes since 2000. His uh, cousin started giving classes, Leandro Martins, who is now in Abu Dhabi, and he kind of started that structure back then. Um, so he would give classes for little kids, and he would give classes for teenagers, and he would also give discounted or free classes for adults. Um, and then he would provide snacks for the little kids because they would come from after school, um, they'd be running around playing soccer, then they'd come down and they'd do jiu-jitsu, it'd just be hours of physical activity, so we needed to feed them, or he needed to feed them. So uh, he would give them free classes and he would give them snacks. Um, then the other part of his job was going around and giving seminars. Um, so he would spend large portions of, of the year out of the country and away from the kids and away from the project. And at that time, sometimes there would be um, things missing. Maybe snacks wouldn't get bought or things would happen because he just wasn't around. So Tedity Kids Project was formed when I got there the first year and he was gone for about six months and I was starting to see these issues that were happening when he wasn't around to immediately be like, here's $20 out of my pocket, take it and go buy snacks, you know? Because he has an academy, but it wasn't necessarily a, uh, like making enough profit to pay the bills and all of the extra things. Um, so I started a blog and a PayPal account. I had looked into um, GoFundMe things like that, but they charge a lot of fees. They have their own fees, and then they use PayPal, so they charge you PayPal fees. So when you don't get a lot of money and you're trying to, you know, maximize the impact, you know, it didn't make sense to use a GoFundMe. So instead, I made a PayPal account and I created the blog just to be like, hey, we need money, and this is what we're gonna gonna spend it on, you know, to create that transparency. Um, and we just started promoting it, and we get little donations, and we started off just paying for snacks, um, you know, like 80 bucks a month to fund the snack program, and then I try to get them healthier snacks, like not just cookies, but fruit, um, and then slowly we started funding um, bigger tournaments. We started putting the kids' class, like maybe 10 kids, in a small tournament, a small local tournament, so they could go compete, and we've just been growing from there, from that small blog, really. And so we'll ask people, we'll ask you about how people can donate a bit, but I want to make, make clear, like, so about 80 bucks a month pays for all the snacks for the Terror Kids Project? That's about the snack budget? 80 bucks a month will buy them cookies and juice. You know, I always, I like to, um, 
I like to say like maybe 150 a month and we can get them snacks and sandwiches and healthier things but we always have like a base of just something to give them you know in the future I'd like to see more like um, nutritional seminars and things like that where the, the athletes actually learn about proper nutrition every donation you give goes directly into this project right yep like at the point we have no other expenses we're not we're not paying for teachers or things like that. So all of the money that is donated goes directly to either paying for kids to compete, for paying for snacks, or for paying for things that the academy needs directly. Um, so yes, it's all to the kids, to the favela. And how many kids would you say are impacted by this every, every month, every year? How, how many faces do you see? Um, we have about 30 to 40 kids that train at our kids' class, the little kids from the favela. We have about 7 to 10 older kids from 10 to maybe 18 that we sponsor for bear tournaments, the more expensive ones, like IBJJF or traveling to Sao Paulo to compete in Brazilian nationals and things like that. Um, and I would say the project serves about 70 people, including all of our adults as well, because you got to take into consideration, even though they're not cute, smiling faces, that these older people, it's also a great, jiu-jitsu is a great way to deal with anxiety. It's a great way to deal with stress. They're helping out a lot of people in the community, older and younger as well. I know from my experience with working um, with, with children and, and working in the school systems here in the United States that sometimes um, these after-school projects uh, where kids are, where we provide kids with their snacks, like sometimes this is the only or this is the one nutritious meal they're getting um, a day. And so, um, uh, what is what is the philosophy behind? Um, it was Ted's philosophy behind you know what he's doing, and how are people in, in the community um, responding to what he's doing in the favelas? Um, it's been a, a a tremendous influence for families and people in the favelas, and they definitely support him. Um, a lot of people consider today to be somewhat of a legend of his time. I know he's fallen off from the competition scene, but they look up to him to be a legend. And when you go to the favela and you just walk around and you see everybody wearing like Casca Grossa, which is his sponsors, or Terede t-shirts, and you say, and you see even the drug dealers in the corner boys that like are grown talking about, oh, I used to train with Terede when I was a yellow belt and I went to this one competition one time in the Tajuka Tennis Club and I took this guy, got down and I passed his guard. And they talk about those things that happened years ago with such detail, like it was yesterday. It's it's amazing. And then it's their memories that they cherish for their entire life, no matter what happens to them, no matter how many years they've spent, you know, standing on a quarter selling drugs, they still have those memories that they remember of jiu-jitsu, of when they got those gold medals. So it has an amazing impact on kids' lives. And as they grow up, it's something that stays with them. It is a positive experience um, that offsets all the violence and the different things that they have in the favela. So families love to see their kids doing either jiu-jitsu. There's tons of social projects in the Cantagala favela now that have dance-related, Muay Thai, MMA, jiu-jitsu. So the, the, the projects have started to disseminate and offer a safe place for a lot of kids. In the three years that you spent there, and I know you're going back, do you have one particular story, either of a kid or an adult in the community, where you saw a life transform that you can particularly point to, like, even just one meaningful thing to you personally that happens while you're down? Uh, there are so many, um, so many stories. I would say one of the most um, transformative things that I, that I saw was with Tedede's own cousin, um, Fabricio Silva, who is a black belt now. 
He was a brown belt when I arrived, and he was kind of the, the one that was in charge when Tedede wasn't around. So he is the kids' teacher. Tedede and him um, teach the kids' class, and when Tedede isn't here, it's it's him, and he opens the, cla- the gym in the morning, so he kind of runs everything. Um, and he would just do his job. When I got there, he was doing his job. And then we started the project, and we, we sponsored him as well. So we put him in competitions as well to compete in IBJJF, to compete in the local tournaments, to go with the kids. Um, and then there was one year in 2015 where we took our first trip out of Rio. Um, it was myself, it was Fabricio, it was Jonathan Marquez that is now training with the Mendez brothers in California, which is also like a great story, but everybody knows that story. Um, and it was Muleza, who is another great kid that trains a lot. Um, and Fabricio won Brazilian Nationals that year. He got gold as a Masters. And he went down there and he had no money. He had the money that the project paid for him to get down there, to go. And so we get there and he wins. And then he's just like, well, you know, acai maybe? Like, because obviously he had no money. So he's like, you're going to buy me an acai? I was like, all right, I'm going to go buy you an acai. You got no money. You're a Brazilian national champion. Like, all right, let's go. Come on. And you know, I'm a great person, but I get like stressed out. And I was competing as well. So I was like, all right, come on, let's go get this acai. And then he's just sitting there eating his acai and looking at me. And then it's kind of like speechless, like almost about to cry. And he just had no words to express how happy he was to be the Brazilian national champion after so many years. Like, he was like, I've tried, you know, like, I've gotten second so many times, but, you know, and he had no words for it, you know? And, like, there's no amount of money that you could have paid me that would have given me that same feeling of seeing how happy he was. Like, it changed his life. And it was just, it was an amazing experience that day. Sounds like it. So how can people help? Either by finding your blog, donating to the PayPal. Um, how can folks get involved and support the Tellerate Kids Project in Tellerate Jiu-Jitsu? Alright, so currently, right now, we are functioning with the same blog, tedadaykidsproject.com, um, that runs off of a PayPal that goes to the same email, tedadaykidsproject at gmail.com. But um, right now, I'm in the process of incorporating Tedity Kids Project as an official 501c in the U.S., which means we will be a legitimate nonprofit organization. Instead of using a PayPal um, that I run, I will be able to open up a bank account for Tedity Kids Project in the U.S., and hopefully soon we will be able to receive donations through that as well, um, which will be great. It will allow us to partner with um, bigger organizations, receive larger donations. But right now, we are accepting every everything for PayPal. Um, so you can contact us through email if you have any questions or doubts. You can check out our website. We have athletes um, profiles up there so you can see the kids that we're spending this money on. You can see them winning. Um, like I said, we have Jonathan Marquez that's in um, California. So we definitely try to make sure that you can see where this money is going. One last question, which is, we were here at Toro Cup 6. Toro Cup 4 was a benefit for Terror Kids Project. So you have a lot of people here who really support the cause. And I'm just wondering, if you, if you could tell them what their money is, that they donated, what would you tell them? Okay, so that was actually an amazing donation that we received from Toro Cup. It was over $8,000, which was probably one of our biggest lump sum donations, um, which was amazing. So normally we only pay for a snack program and tournaments and things like that, but this um, large sum allowed us to make some improvements in the academy. So we were able to get new mats, we got covers for the mats, uh, we were able to fix the fans and reupholster some chairs. 
and then we sent uh, we did pay for a few competitions I know we sent one athlete Fabiola down to Sao Paulo to compete in ADC's selective um, and it also went to sponsoring a few other athletes in local competitions but it was just great to be able to do that re- uh, the, the renovation in the academy with so much money it was amazing well, thank you so much for doing all the great work that you do. Thank you so much, Nico. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Changing gears a little bit, let's talk a little bit about the hosts of Toro Cup. For each of the six iterations, Seth Champ from Triangle Jiu-Jitsu, uh, spoiler alert, he's also my instructor, has generously donated the space. This is useful for a lot of different reasons. For one thing, when you don't have to pay rent for a space, you're able to make it a more to make all the money go where it needs to go. Whether you know, and and so uh, Seth's very generously allowed us to take over the academy for the last couple of years uh, and to put on this really fun community event. And so Lord has talked to Seth a little bit about both his you know both his donation of the academy space, but also the meaning of our own radio nickname, Dirty White Belt Radio. So here's Lourdes talking to Seth Champ. Seth, thanks so much for hosting the um, the Toro Cup Six today. Um, I think you've hosted it here at, at your school almost every time. Every single one, not this location, but we've been at the one uh, other location and this last uh, two times here. Let's talk about your training in Triangle Jiu Jitsu, and let's talk about you had how many people from your school are competing today? It was supposed to be two. We ended up uh, losing one of our opponents, so just Amber was fighting Amber Hable, and she just had a killer match with Maggie McDowell. So that was an awesome fight. Yeah, it, I, I've I've rolled with Amber, and she's kind of dangerous on the mats. So I was uh, I was pretty excited to watch her. That was a really exciting match. Yeah, we can. That's exactly what we're looking for at Toro Cup matches. Obviously, you want to get the win, but probably the most important thing is to put on a nice show for all of the crowd and for everybody that's watching. We're trying to go jujitsu. We're trying to grow the jujitsu community. Um, and those are the types of matches that are going to bring in friends and family and say, "Oh, this is really cool." That was awesome. Yeah, that that was definitely exciting enough that you'd want to. That's a, that's like a highlight reel um, of that match. Um, tell me a little bit more about your school. So you you just moved to this new location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we uh, partner up with Cageside and North Durham CrossFit. We moved up here about eight months ago. Um, completely renovated this building, and it's been an interesting progress. We moved a little bit further away from Durham, and while that was nerve wracking a little bit to be a little further away, it's actually turned out to be pretty cool. We've tapped into sort of the behavior of the Roxborough, the Treyburn, uh, Hillsboro people, and kind of continued to grow. So we're happy about that. So um, tell me about your jiu-jitsu. Are you going to be competing anytime soon? So um, I have always competed at least once or twice a year. Certainly a couple years ago, it was more like three, four, five times a year. When I was a blue and purple belt, I was competing at least a few times a month. At this point, I teach so much. I teach jiu-jitsu at Duke University, um, MMA kickboxing over there. I came here teaching private lessons, and I try to teach as many day classes as I can. I also travel several times a month in and out of town. So my comp- I am planning to compete this year, but it's going to have to wait till summer, so when I have time to actually train. Even though I roll with my students a few times a, a week, it's not the same as getting ready for a competition. So I'm not done competing, just super busy these days, which means I'll probably have to compete summers in the summer. So um, tell me something, because I know like when, when I'm getting ready for a tournament or when my peers are getting ready for tournaments, like we all kind of train with each other and we try to get together and we might, you know, we, and we obviously have the expertise of like our upper belts 
to come in and, and, and help us and to, um, to direct us and, and guide us. But as a black belt, is there like a super secret black belt group that um, that trains together, you know, in some somebody's basement and you guys, that's how you guys are getting better? Like who does a black belt train with to get ready for a tournament? So that's always been one of the tricks of some of the old school people like uh, who are black belts now coming up who also were competing like Jake, myself, some of the other guys in the area, um, is that we didn't have a lot of old upper ranks to train with. So our, our training had to be smarter. Um, and so we would actually, when getting ready for big tournaments, we do training camps with specific competition training. And in that, we do a lot of positional stuff where I can let my big, tough purple belts like Hamid and Jojo get on my back and try to choke me, put me in bad spots, um, work out of a deficiency, either time-wise or position-wise, um, and just put ourselves out there. But I think I kind of was inspired years ago by Haja Gracie's interview on some publication where he was talking about how you know he only has blue and purple belts to train with. And we're talking about a guy who's won it at every level consistently, still considered one of the best in the world. And like back then in the late 90s, early, I guess late 2000s, I should say, 2008, 2009, 10, he was winning everything with only blue and purple belt training partners. So I know it can be done. Um, I would really like to thank you for sitting down and talking to me today, Seth. And um, hopefully we'll get to see you competing this summer. For sure. Thank you, Lourdes. You're doing a great job. And we love Dirty White Belt. Just real quick, I was talking to someone this morning about Dirty White Belt. And I wanted to throw it out there to make sure everybody knows what dirty white belt means. A dirty white belt is a white belt that trains so much that his white belt turns blue, then turns purple, then turns brown, eventually turns black. So those who don't know, like me, who didn't know for a little bit what dirty white belt means, that's what we're going for. Dirty white belt means you train hard and long. Thanks so much, Seth. We always talk about the sponsors of Toro Cup as well. Boomer does a really nice job of making sure that the sponsors of whom uh, Dirty White Belt is one feel really valued. But one of the main sponsors uh, has been Ruckus Pizza. And the reason behind that is Eric Shelton, who is a blue belt from Triangle Jiu-Jitsu, one of the managers of Ruckus uh, in the Morrisville location. Lourdes talked to him a little bit, not just about his support for Toro Cup, but about his training, about his experience as a law enforcement officer and as a father uh, training Jiu-Jitsu for self-defense and how Jiu-Jitsu has actually influenced the Ruckus pizza menu. So here's Eric Shelton talking to Lourdes Cantu about Toro Cup. So Eric, um, I've, I'm ashamed to say, but I've not tried Ruckus Pizza before. Tell me a little bit about Ruckus Pizza and how it is that you're here at the Toro Cup 6. Uh, Ruckus Pizza has a stored history of giving back to the community. Um, I run the location in Morrisville. I also train here at Triangle. So I think it was Toro Cup 2. Um, Boomer approached me and asked me if we'd like to be a sponsor. And it was a, it was a no-brainer. So we've uh, sponsored every a portion of Toro Cup every every Toro Cup since. And I told Boomer that it's an automatic. Don't ask. Just tell me when the dates are, and then send me a bill. That's pretty awesome. So now I have two questions for you. One: How long have you been training jiu-jitsu? Uh, a little over three years. Okay. And has it always been with Triangle Jiu-Jitsu under Seth? Yes. Okay. I started. Um, when I retired from the police department, I gained a lot of weight, and I was training in L.A. boxing, and I met Hamid. And then Hamid brought me here, and it's been downhill or uphill, however you look at it, ever since. Um, I, I, would, I would say uphill as a person that trains as well. Um, so I was actually just speaking with Jeff Daughtry, who is a Durham County Sheriff, mm-hmm. about, um, about the role of jiu-jitsu um, in his career, in his, mm-hmm. you know, what, what he does with law enforcement. Um, so did you start jiu-jitsu after law enforcement? or? I did. I have uh, four children. Three of them are daughters. And I was looking for some self-defense for them. And our defensive tactics instructors in New York trained jiu-jitsu and there weren't a lot of academies near me to get it so when I moved down here there 
seem to be a lot that are in the area and I got them started and then I said that looked fun and I and I started after that and then talking to my parents and other people in law enforcement back home I stressed that they need to do this it's an important not just a self-defense art if you're in law enforcement it's something you really really need to to learn to keep yourself safe out there and reduce injury. So um, you mentioned you have three daughters, um, and do they also train jiu-jitsu? Yes. Uh, my 12- and 13-year-old do. My 21-year-old originally went to New York to college and kind of did it as a club at Hofstra, and now she is at NC State, and she's starting to do it at the at NC State with their program and club there. So that's pretty awesome. Do they focus on... Um because I know that Seth is a Hoist Gracie school with the focus on um, self-defense. So are your girls, do they compete or are they focusing more on the self-defense aspect of jiu-jitsu? Self-defense. You know, they really don't, and they don't enjoy the competition aspect of it, mm-hmm. but they really see the importance of the self-defense aspect. And, you know, I have a 16-year-old son who recently got in a fight this week at school who he comes home and the question is, what level of force can I use? Because this guy was bigger and he sees the, the benefit in it. Obviously, he didn't, unfortunately, he didn't use as much as he should, but he still stayed safe. He didn't have any damage, but um, definitely self-defense. So your son trains as well? Yeah. Um, as a parent, I, my, both of my kids also trained, and um, it just gave me a little, um, an extra le- level of, um, of uh, feeling like they were safe and able to at least handle themselves. And it sounds like your son was able to handle himself. Yeah, yeah he was. So how is, how is eating Ruckus Pizza going to help me with my jiu-jitsu? So we have a, a little bit of everything. Um, we're just not pizza. We have pasta, sandwiches, wraps, sushi. Um, all of them have won awards. Um, we're working. At, we have healthier options as well. We call it a lighter side menu. But we've, we we uh, teamed up with some nutritionists right now, and we're analyzing the whole menu. And we're getting a lot of different healthy options. So there's been times, for instance, like when CJ, CJ was training for his fight, and he was with Trevor. They would come in, and I know he was in the middle of a weight cut. So we have healthy options for them. So you can still go out and eat, but you just don't. You know, you can still go out and eat with your friends, but you don't have to sit there just drinking water, eating a piece of broccoli and a chicken breast. So so your jiu-jitsu training and, and being in the jiu-jitsu lifestyle has influenced the Ruckus Pizza menu? Yeah, a little bit. Um, it's definitely the, the lighter side menu is influenced from people weight cutting, and so is the nutritional analysis that we're going through right now. Veg, very vegetarian-friendly. Um, we're trying to explore into the vegan land. Nice. Um, uh, Jeff inspired me that, so we've been looking at some vegan options, but we do have gluten-free pizza, gluten-free sandwiches, so we're trying to spread the love uh, across the healthy spectrum and satisfy everybody's needs. For our next couple of interviews, we're going to break a little bit of news. Now, most of you guys know Tim Hufford, who is an instructor at Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu under Mozzie Hayderi. Tim's a purple belt and uh, does a lot for the local scene. So those guys have an exciting new announcement, and it's, you know, it's always a real boon to see the scene grow and to watch gyms expand. And so Lourdes talked to Tim Hufford a little bit about some exciting news for Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and their new Fight for Life uh, gym. I hear Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu is doing an expansion. Yes, ma'am. So we're going from 2,000 square feet to 10,000 square feet. We're adding 30 heavy bags with a full kickboxing program, uh, full-service gym, kettlebells, weights up to as heavy as you can lift, um, squat racks, deadlifts, uh, indoor turf, and doubling our mat space. It's a pretty exciting time. 
So this sounds like it's more than just a jujitsu school now. So as the philosophy behind, like what, what's going on, is the is the philosophy of the school expanding, or like what what's what's motivating this? Yes, we the the new gym is called Train for Life. Our idea is train like combat athletes across all levels. So we want to get people in great shape and train for your everyday life, you know, your, whatever you're doing in your normal life, whether it's just going up and down the stairs or whether it's like some of us competing at the world level. We want you to train with the top of the line equipment, um, with the best science behind it, like real combat athletes train. This sounds pretty exciting. I, I think right now it's mainly Mazi Hideri is the, um, is the main instructor there. And I know that you teach some classes as well. Will you be adding some new instructors? Yes. All of our Train for Life classes, which are going to be a combination of kickboxing, kettlebell, and functional training, are going to be taught by our, our fight team, our actual fighters who have been in the cage, been in the ring. Um, we're really excited to offer that. You know, Not a lot of gyms can say... All of our instructors have actually put it on the line uh, when it really mattered. Oh, when, do, when do you expect the new expansion to be open? March 14th, the grand opening. Uh, we're going to have a soft opening. There's going to be some changing around. So if you're in the area in the beginning of March, um, it'll be kind of a soft opening. But the grand opening will be March 14th. Thank you so much, Tim, and we're looking forward to coming to visit the, uh, the new school. And I hear you have an open mat on Sundays? 10 to 2. Uh, tons of people from all over the place. Uh, it's really exciting. Uh, we'd love to have you come out, you know, as always. You know, I, know, I know some gyms in the area charge for open mats. We never charge any mat fees or anything like that. We just want you to come out, come together, um, have some good jiu-jitsu. Now we're getting into our second featured interview. We've spoken with Jeremy Orell before, but more in the context of, hey, we're here at Pro Jitsu. You have some athletes competing. Uh, tell us what you think about what's going to happen. And there's a little bit of that here as well. But we also get into Jeremy's time in Brazil, training uh, to become an MMA fighter, which is what he thought he wanted to do at that time. His training with the legendary Roberto Gordo Correa um, and his experience going down there at a time when not a lot of gringos were. And so we, we did talk to him a little bit about what he thought the, would happen in the matches. And by the way, he was kind of dead on with his analysis. Jeremy's one of the more cerebral cats in the scene in terms of his realistic breakdowns of strengths and weaknesses. So I always appreciate getting his perspective on jujitsu. And I don't want to minimize that. But I also had a lot of fun asking him about uh, his time in Brazil. So here's me and Lourdes Cantu talking to Jeremy Orell of Great Grappling. I want to talk to you guys about Cageside Fight Company for a second. I've been buying from Cageside for more than six years, and about 99% of the gear that I use is from Cageside. That's not because other companies don't make good stuff. They do. It's just that Cageside offers the highest quality products at the best value and, no joke, the best customer service I've ever experienced in my life. So whether you're looking for shin pads, whether you're looking for Thai gear, whether you're looking for Brazilian jiu-jitsu gis or Valetudo shorts, whether you're looking for the coolest t-shirts around, check out Cageside.com or come into their fight shop at one. Lotter Road, right in Durham, North Carolina. You won't be sorry. Another thing I want to mention about Cageside is they do more to support local fighters and local Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitors than just about anybody else. And so we've got to support the people that support us. Check out Cageside Fight Company, 124 Lotter Road in Durham, North Carolina, or online at cageside.com. So Jeremy, I understand you have a new professional 
fighter house that you're setting up, or maybe it's already set up, Project TAP. Maybe you could tell us a little about uh, how that came to be. Absolutely. So uh, the house itself, uh, we refer to it as Project TAP. We finally secured the house, a lot of renovations going on. Uh, especially getting it ready as a product that I want to present to someone outside of my school. You know, if we're going to do a media push with it and open up opportunities for people to come train uh, and stay at Great Grappling and and train through that program, it needs to be a polished product. It's not there yet. Uh, We made an expansion at the school, knocked down some walls, and so uh, the time frame on Project Tap kind of got pushed back a little bit. Uh, I still would like it to be first quarter, but realistically thinking it's probably going to be more like second quarter. Um, but Project TAP is, stands for Training Athletes Professionally. Uh, it will be an opportunity for uh, 8 to 10 people that want to train professionally in the sport of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, to come to the house, stay there, not worry about lodging, electricity, internet, training. Those are the things that you know I uh, will take care of and that will allow them to just focus on the things that matter, which are triangles, arm bars, transitions, points, and things like that. Oh, that, this sounds like an amazing opportunity, but so how are you choosing, how, how does one get get into the Project Tap House? How are you choosing your athletes? Right on. So uh, there are a few people that know about it now, and it's kind of been whispered around like a little bit of a code word. Uh, right now, people that want to come stay uh, are friends of people that are currently staying there, and that's Josh Murdoch, uh, CJ Murdoch, and, and Caitlin Huggins. They currently stay at that house, and so their friends will come stay there right now uh, because it's not... Uh, a finished product. It's not something you can get into. Uh, in the future, we will have a media push for it that will kind of announce it uh, becoming open and, and a viable option for people that aren't known to us. Uh, there will be a um, application process. I'm not sure what that will entail. Uh, off the top of my head, and of course I reserve the right to change my mind at any point in this, but um, off the top of my head, we'll probably uh, have a professional videographer come in, uh, take a video, realistic expectations of what the house is. You know, we don't want to just say what it is. I want to show what it is. I want people to realize what they're moving into. Uh, it's not going to be five-star accommodations, but it would be something that I wouldn't mind living in. You know, it, it should be clean. Uh, it should be presentable uh, like a product. So once we uh, have that videographer come in and we have a media push for it out, I already have uh, the logo, we're working on the uh, video intro and things like that, Uh, the announcement will come out and then we will accept applications. What that application will will look like, uh, I can't tell you because I, I haven't made it yet. Uh, but it's not necessarily going to just be all brown belts and black belts. You know, we'll, we'll probably be taking on some strong blue belts or purple belts that uh, have a good, uh, good attitude, coachable. To me, that's more important than winning medals. I don't believe that winning medals makes you a great grappler, although uh, being a fantastic grappler, you will win medals. And so I'll take someone that has the right attitude, and I will turn them into someone that wins medals. Hopefully. That's the goal. So what's the expectation then of the, um, what's the return you're looking for from your, um, from the people that you're accepting into the house? You know, um, there will be privatized classes for them, pro classes, uh, in a time slot in the day when other people normally that are a student base wouldn't be available. Um, that At those times we'll be talking about strategy, coaching, maybe not necessarily techniques, but technique selection, things like that. Heavy drill times, maybe lifting times in there. In the off times outside of their training, I'm going to want some help at the school. You know, having someone that I uh, train professionally, meaning that's their job basically or their profession, um, and I invest in them, they should turn around and invest in, in the rest of the school and the students. And so it's one of those things where um, 
people sometimes lose sight of the fact that we don't find training partners, we make training partners, and I'm trying to build a machine of training partner production, if that makes sense. So when you say lifting, you're talking about lifting like acai bowls and coconut water, <laughs> things like that, like maybe lifting spirits? Uh, well, lifting spirit, spirits, obviously, but um, I wouldn't say uh, acai bowls. Uh, no, and, and I'm not talking strictly about weights, but there is going to be a uh, workout regimen. I firmly believe you can do uh, most of the things that you want to accomplish with a kettlebell or resistance band or rowing machine and a pull-up bar. Um, those, those, all, three, all of those objects uh, can, can get you where you need to be, but there does need to be some type of um, focus on all of the modalities of fitness and not just strength. So strength, flexibility, endurance, things like that. So many people know you from your coaching, from your teaching, from your popular YouTube channel. A lot of people have seen you at tournaments, things like that. But I've always wanted to talk to you about your time in Brazil, uh, training with, with Gordo, legendary art of you gave your black belt. Yes, sir. And so how did that come to be, and what was your experience like? So I've told this story a few times, uh, but it never gets old because of how ridiculously lucky I got. Ridiculously lucky. Um, I started off training with Alliance of Charlotte, uh, Louis Togno. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away in a car wreck. I had, had separated uh, training with him a little bit before that, and I had about two years of training combat jiu-jitsu under Charles Hannabrink. I graduated college. Uh, I was a little bit of a non-traditional student because I had spent some time in Iraq. Uh, and so I graduated in tw at, at age 27. Um, there was some tomfoolery with getting uh, certified to teach where a teaching district tried to get me to get a job that I didn't want. And so um, I ended up spinning my wheels doing security for a year, and that year of my life just went by extremely fast. And so I decided that I was going to uh, move to Brazil. I knew that I needed to do something radical to define my life. I didn't have any children. Uh, I didn't um, have a job that was holding me down, and, and there were really no good reasons why I couldn't go to Brazil. And so uh, I just started telling people I was going to move to Brazil. And I'm one of those people that's like, I have the shame, or I worry about the shame of saying I'm going to do something, and then people going, ah, Jeremy, he's that guy who doesn't do what he says he's going to do. And so, so I just started telling people, and they're like, you're not moving to Brazil, you know, my parents included, uh, and they kind of, yeah, okay, whatever. And so um, I, it came time for me to go to Brazil, and I had an accommodation through Charles Hinnebrink, uh, that kind of fell through. And uh, I don't know if it was money, political, or whatever. I wasn't involved in, in it on that aspect. But um, I quickly realized that I had told everyone I was moving to Brazil and I didn't have, like, accommodations or a plan to go, although I had already gotten my uh, passport and my visa. And so I... Uh, I just put on the sure dog form. I was like, uh, I'm moving to Brazil. Does anyone have any contacts? And uh, some guy was like, hey, you should go stay, or you should contact Dennis Ash. And uh, Dennis Ash now is known from Connection Rio. And um, But then he had helped a, a good number of people for a long time uh, go stay in Brazil, you know, other gringos, but never really as like a professional business. And so this, I was among the first three people to go down and stay at Connection Rio that what is known now as Connection Rio. Uh, out of that three group, uh, you know, Pascal Kraus was one. Uh, he's a UFC fighter. Uh, I don't know when the last time he fought, but he was a UFC fighter. And then uh, Ryan, and he's, uh, Ryan's last name is Simone, but uh, Henzo Bluebelt at the time. Over the course of the time that I was staying there, uh, I met 
hundreds of jiu-jitsu players from all over the world. Uh, and to see what it morphed into is, is pretty rad. I made a, a lot of uh, lifetime uh, relationships. But with that being said, uh, I didn't know any of that about Dennis when I messaged Dennis. Because I was the first group to go down there, it wasn't like I could message someone that was currently in the house and like, hey, is this like legitimate? Is this above board? And you know, getting a call to someone in Brazil is a little bit shady. Uh, it kind of sounds, you know, kind of through an echo chamber type thing. And I remember he needed me to send him a down payment, right? And it was like one of these like wire it to me type things. And it was a lot of money to me at the time, a lot of money. And um, I remember looking at like his website and it wasn't super professional at the time. It was, you know, brand new business. Don't, don't judge me by my first website, please. Um, and so uh, somebody at, uh, I think JD Shelley or, or somebody from an Alliance school in Texas who I had randomly just trained at his school one time when I was in Texas. I'm like, all right, so this guy says he knows him. I'm gonna wire him this money, and it, it was it was pretty sketchy. Uh, now it's not like that. Now now there, you know, my blog is a little bit of a resource. People people can access me or access other people that have stayed in that house, and so it's not so scary to send the money at, at this point. But um, I remember getting off the plane uh, and, and heading down to um, connect what is now Connection Rio. And thinking that you know I would make it work with English, and uh, when I went to Brazil, there there was no there was no English. The guy that was holding the sign for my name when I got off the plane spelt it G E R M I E, which I mean is not even close. Right? I mean maybe phonetically a little bit, but it wasn't even close. I remember looking at him for probably five minutes before I was like, "Is this guy here for me?" You know. Um, but that that's how I, I ended up getting hooked up with Dennis. And then Dennis is who put me in contact with, with Gordo. And uh, Gordo is probably the most famous jiu-jitsu coach that people don't know. At a time when a lot of the famous and really great uh, coaches came to America to start teaching, uh, he stayed in Brazil and maintained a school there. Um, and then he opened up his own school. And so people are more apt to know him now, obviously. Uh, the bra He was mega famous on his own. He's not famous because of me. But... Uh, in a foothold in America, you know, where I'm writing a blog about him, uh, in addition to Rafael Dos Anjos coming on the scene and, and doing well in the UFC, you know, he, he's a lot more uh, known to the general BJJ population now than he was back then. Everyone knew him in Brazil then, but, you know, America's a little bit different market. It's funny sometimes how people can be, like, mega famous either in America and they are famous overseas or, or, or vice versa. So. So, uh, of the current, you have several folks uh, competing in training actively. You mentioned C.J. Murdoch, Josh Murdoch, Caitlin Huggins, a couple of whom are competing today. Mm -hmm. uh, what? Just because we've got you before the matches, what do you expect out of the matches today? Mm, predictions. Last time I got predictions, I did pretty well, right? I, I think, think so. so. I think yeah. so. Um, it's going to be dependent on the initial transaction. Uh, Anthony Ebert, Albert, Albert, Albert. Uh, nice, aggressive game. Uh, you know, we, we've done a, a good bit of talking about how you initially make contact when you come out and how my views on that are, are morphing. Um, I don't think that you you can come out against someone um, and try to feel them out anymore. I think that, especially in the IBJJF tournament, that's very difficult because of the time limit. And if uh, they come out hard and you come out feeling them out, you might be at 65%, they're at 100%. In that first exchange, you may lose points or advantages that decide the whole match. If you come out hard and they come out hard, then it's a wash. If they come out easy and you come out hard, then, then it's a win. And so 
uh, you may get those first points. So I can't see a scenario where it's not good to come out hard uh, and, and try to institute your game plan immediately. Um, but there are a lot of consequences to not. Uh, Josh and I have talked about this a good bit. We've talked about some of his starting stances when he comes in. We're going to try something a little bit different. Uh, but Anthony's a tough guy. You know, he's got an uh, aggressive game, good guard, long legs, uh, especially for how slender he is. We know that that's going to be difficult. I think that uh, if Josh breaks the eight-minute mark, Josh wins. I think that if it gets finished in under that, Anthony probably has the, the edge uh, if he comes out a little bit too hot. Uh, so Josh just needs to be prepared. As far as uh, C.J. Murdoch, uh, I think that that is, and David Porter, I think that that is a, a good matchup. I believe it's a good matchup for C.J. Uh, C.J. is a gamer. He doesn't have a problem coming out hot, but sometimes he'll, you know, it's weird. He'll play an aggressive passive game. I don't know how else to say that. Like, he'll come out aggressively, but in a feel-out fashion. And uh, uh, David Porter, I, I feel, kind of does the same thing, but maybe a little bit more uh, lethargic at the, at the initial. I'm not saying anything bad about David. I'm just saying about how he comes out and enters into a match. Um, I think that I would be surprised if David Porter darsed or arm-triangled CJ, uh, knowing that uh, he gets to train with me and he got to train with Milton Vera, who is very good at the arm-triangles and things like that. So I think that uh, CJ is prepared in that sense. Um, I'm interested to see how it goes. They're both fantastic competitors. It could go either way, uh, but I, I think I would put my money on CJ today. Yeah, I legitimately don't know what's going to happen between those two great athletes, and that's what makes it so exciting. It's going to end by submission, for sure. Well, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely. Thanks for so sure. much, Jeremy. It's always interesting at Toro Cups to see how they inspire other people to compete. Lourdes did a quick interview with Nancy Reyes, who just did her first IBJJF competition. So she described that experience for us and also said something that uh, reminded me of Jarrett Church. You'll know what it is. So, Nancy, one of the questions I had for you, I know you recently, um, well, you competed at IBJJF in Charlotte. Charlotte. How did that go? Um, It was good. I didn't realize how different it would be from rolling. It was my first time, but it was fun, I think, overall. I think the girls were really good, and I had fun. So somebody that's um, that's interested in doing an IBJJF tournament, maybe hasn't done a tournament before, um, and is interested but maybe is a little bit nervous. What would you what would you tell that person? Um, I would tell them to just go for it. I think it's helpful when your teammates have competed and they can like tell you what the rules are, and they can also make training fun. It gives you a goal to work towards, and I think that's what I was you know missing in my jiu-jitsu training because I've been doing it for a while. So. Did you notice a difference, like, uh, like before you started training for the tournament, um, and after you trained for the, uh, and after the tournament, tournament was over in your jiu-jitsu game? Yeah, so um, I definitely started training differently because I, you can see where your holes are. I think when you train with your um, teammates in your school, there's always just like it's just fun. It's you know, there's no nobody's out for points or to submit you really. And so I think you just see big holes in your game that otherwise would go unidentified, at least in my jiu-jitsu training. So um, a lot of people before a big tournament like an IBJJF try to eat um, pretty healthy because, you know, we're all, um, you know, where you're eating for nutrition and you want to feed your body and your muscles for the stamina of the the tournament matches. Um, And so I'm guessing you were eating pretty healthy before the IBJJF at Charlotte? Yes. So I, I mean, I cut... I only had to cut five pounds, 
but it still was really hard. And I did it because I wanted to be as much of an advantage as I could because it was going to be my first tournament. I didn't want to be at the lower weight class of the, I mean, at the lower end of the upper, you know, the weight class. So I had to lose five pounds, which was really hard. I know it sounds like it's but like I'm already pretty small. <laughs> well, five pounds means what? You just didn't eat pizza for, you know, you stopped eating chips. Is that what you did? Yeah, chips is my weakness. So pretty much like the month before the tournament, I cut out all junk food. Other than that, you know, I still eat regularly. Um, so what was your, since you cut, off, you cut out junk food, what was your go-to snack after the IBJJF Atlanta <laughs> tournament? Yeah, so it was so funny. Everybody that knows me knows my love of chips. So Heather actually, as soon as my matches were over, just like handed me a bag of Doritos. <laughs> and I was like, yay. <laughs> so we want to finish on a high note. And I want to mention one other thing, which is Lourdes did several other interviews. We're running the ones this time that are time sensitive, the ones that are really kind of tied to the Toro Cup. Like, hey, you know, we're talking about this match. It's fresh in our memory. We did a couple of other interviews, and by we, I mean Lourdes, with local folks that are doing great things that I want to save for segments on future shows. For example, Lourdes did a great interview with Heather Casey, uh, Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu practitioner who also is a yoga teacher, about the benefits of yoga for training. And that'll be a great standalone segment on a future episode. Uh, And so... So we're going to keep some of those back and run them on future shows. But I really wanted to close out this show uh, with an interview with local MMA fighter Sammy Seff. So Samantha, Sammy Seff, uh, came into the studio with two of her training partners before her last fight, which she emerged victorious. And unfortunately, some, in a development we're all really sad about, um, Sammy was just drilling and ended up blowing out her ACL and really hurting her knee pretty badly in other areas. And mm-hmm. so if you can send some good vibes to Sammy or, you know, join the meal train that Donna Natosi has put together for her, we would really appreciate that. I'm sure Sammy would as well. It's, it's, it's really an unfortunate blow, a really talented young fighter who had a title fight coming up. And to be injured like that is really, it's unfortunate. We all know it's a part of the game, but it's never fun. What is fun, however, is talking to someone while they're on painkillers. And so when we, when we saw Sammy walk in uh, wearing a knee brace and uh, all hopped up on goofballs, we knew we had to send Lourdes over. Actually, you know, and Sammy may not remember this, but she saw Lourdes and waved Lourdes over. So we had a really fun conversation that started uh, entertaining and only ended more so. So without further ado, uh, here's Sammy Seff and get well soon, Sammy. This is Lourdes with Dirty White Belt speaking with Sam Seff of TFTCC. Hey, Sam. Say hi. Hey, world. (laughs) Sam right now is a little out of commission, um, but she's here at Toro Cup 6 watching the the matches. Sam, what's going on? How are you feeling about the matches you're watching today? They're awesome. I feel like I'm on a cloud floating because I'm on a ton of pain medication because I tore everything in my knee. But I'm watching all my friends kick butt. So well, yeah, what what happened with the knee? Like what what like how did how did this happen? I was wrestling Quiggles and he was cutting weight for a fight and I slid a little in his sweat, so my knee went one way and my body went the other way, and I started screaming and you know, Trevor was there. He was such a help and Jason Colbreth was there, going, "Damn, dude, that sucks." So were you training for something, too? I had a title fight in April, um, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to get the title. It's going to be a little bit longer. I have no doubt you're going to get the title because you're pretty amazing. And um, I've and the way that you've trained and watching you, uh, your training on Facebook and the commitment that you have to jiu-jitsu and to your MMA career is pretty inspiring. Um, 
so what does the road to recovery look like for you? Right now it's a lot of sitting and observing, which anybody who knows me knows I suck at. I don't care if my hand is dangling off my body. I want to be on the mats. I want to compete. I really wanted to do Toro Cup. I'm going to just come back. I'm going to try and get them to put me on another one. And as soon as I'm clear to compete, I'm taking every competition possible. And so you heard it right here. Sam Suff, as soon as she gets back on her feet, will be taking over the world. And then taking over the world, hide your kids, hide your wife. <laughs> right? <laughs> Tell them, Lord <laughs> So that's our show for the week. I want to thank you all for tuning in, and I especially want to thank Lourdes Cantu for being a real workhorse of this episode. I had a lot of fun uh, listening back to the interviews and editing them, and so hopefully you did as well. One thing about Toro Cup is, is it about great matches? It absolutely is, and I think this Toro Cup had more great matches than any previous Toro Cup, including my favorite match maybe of all time at Toro Cup, Nakapan with versus Greg Walker. But it's also really about community. It's also about getting a bunch of folks together that aren't always in the same space. It's about finding out what people are up to. Hey, is your gym expanding? Hey, is your restaurant developing a new healthier menu? Hey, what are the benefits of yoga in training? An interview we'll get to later. And, and so those are the kind of stories that we want to hear. I always say that we want to tell the stories of the martial arts in the Carolinas and beyond. So if you know of a great story that you didn't hear here, or if this gave you an idea for a great story, hit us up, cagesidewhup at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram. We're on Twitter at Dirty White Belt. or on Twitter at DWB Radio and on Instagram at Dirty White Belt. You can also just hit me up at tournaments. Don't forget to go to U.S. Grappling. Don't forget to keep training. Uh, my name is Jeff Shaw, and thank you again for listening. We will see you next week with an interview with the one and only current best in the world, Dominika Odlenica. Take care.